All right, gentlemen. Looks like we're at 6.30 here. So go ahead and get started. Thank you, thank you. We're going to pick back up at chapter 1. We're working toward the end of chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. And we're going to get into chapter 2 and 3. And chapter 2 and 3, I think, will be uh, particularly challenging for some of us, especially those of us who have uh, you know, been deeply influenced by 20th century Lutheranism, by radical Lutheranism, because uh, chapters 2 and 3 are going to present ideas that are very different and very contrary and eye-opening. So looking forward to get there. After we have our prayer, I'll reintroduce uh, the context and we'll jump right back into the argument. Let's begin with prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may you bless us with your Holy Spirit that he might reveal unto us your person, your character, your love for us, and the forgiveness of our sins in Christ Jesus and in him crucified. We pray that you would open our hearts and minds to see in Christ our wisdom, our power, our strength, and our everything. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you recall, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, Paul has confronted them with the presenting problem, this sectarianism that you see, for example, specified in verse 12 of chapter 1. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow... Christ. Paul's not done with this argument. Even though it seems as though he's pivoted, he's only pivoted momentarily. He's going to return to this problem in Corinth. And so all of his rhetoric for the remainder of chapter one, the entirety of chapter two, is going to lead up to his conclusion in addressing this problem. Let's go with him, though, on what at first appears to be a tangent, really, in fact, isn't. At verse 18, which, of course, we spent a bit of time on this section last week, but I'll simply run up from 18 into the new material. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So again, we talked about the us versus them. For we who are being saved, the word of the cross is the power of God. Not the dynamite of God, that's anachronistic, but the power of God. And at the same time, this word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So you can see the difference between those who are perishing and us who are being saved. And, of course, we reflected on the present tense reality of that, those who are present tense perishing and present tense being saved. For it is written, Paul basing his observations, his theology here on Isaiah 29, 14, which reads, Thus, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning or the intelligence of the intelligent I will thwart. This has been God's plan from of old to do things backward and upside down. We're going to see why that is as Paul's argument continues to develop. At 20, then, we have these rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So God simply lumps all the wisest and most eloquent of the world together and calls them fools. God has made Foolish, their wisdom, that is the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs. We spent a little bit of time on that last week. And Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, we have two instances of this 
language of being called, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So being called here is analogous or identical, really rather identical to um, us who are being saved in verse 18. Yes, sir. Would you want to maybe just tie together for us the wisdom as used here versus the wisdom you've been teaching about in Proverbs? This is a general wisdom, not with a capital W, right? Yeah, so Paul's going to be, Paul's going to make this explicit where he's going to say, well, we do preach a wisdom. It's just not a wisdom of this age. So maybe that's a helpful distinction. Even in Proverbs, we're talking about a wisdom that flows from Christ. And that is Christian wisdom. And then that broadens out in all kinds of more small, minute ways in which we speak and act, etc. Um, the wisdom of the world is going, as used by Paul here, is what's antithetical to that. What's antithetical to the natural law of God and the revealed law of God, the natural revelation of God and the specific revelation of God. So, you know, I I hesitate because I don't want to go too far down a rabbit hole and, and take us away from Paul's argument, but it, it would be good for us to remember that the church fathers would talk about the two books of God, one being the Bible and the other being nature. And it's good for us to have that as a frame because as we confront people in the world, they're going to say, I don't care about the one book. I don't care about your Bible. And we need to be in a position to say, fine, but what you're doing is contrary to the other book. It's contrary to nature itself. It's contrary to reason itself. And to make our case on that basis, because then once you've sort of shut that down via the one book, maybe they'll reopen their mind to the other book, the specific revelation of God in the scriptures and in Christ Jesus, which is, of course, where the true wealth is found and the true depth and profundity is found. Where you get Christ, you can't get Christ in the first book you get him in the second book but to utilize that first book and not be afraid to make natural arguments against the spirit of the age and to get at home there it's not like that's somehow you know i think this is an aberration of the 20th century too we had this idea of like okay well if we're outside of the bible we're stepping into the secular sphere it's just not true we're stepping into god's creation which is completely uniform and in keeping with his word. It's just a different book. So recognize that there's a distinction there, but not a but not a difference in the sense as if like God has vacated the left-hand kingdom or vacated the first article of the creed or vacated the the place where common man is doing his politicking and philosophizing. So we can stand there bold in the natural revelation of God. Uh, gaining an audience for the specific revelation of God in the Holy Scriptures and in Christ Jesus. Does that kind of help? I may not be identical to what you were thinking. I mean, this is where, like, true science, true reason, these things belong to the Christian. And the pagan just sort of borrows them insofar as he does. Because these things belong to God. True science is studying the first book, right? Okay, so Paul is playing very fast and loose with language here, tongue-in-cheek. He's having a great time. He's very Jesus-esque here. It can be confusing, but it needn't be. He talks about the folly of what we preach, and that's a tongue-in-cheek phrase in verse 21 that it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. That's tongue-in-cheek because this folly is at one and the same time the wisdom of God, which is greater than all the wisdom of the world. So you just got to have that flexibility of mind as you read this section, and it's just all delightful and wonderful. So, of course, the Jews are reject that word of the cross. They're seeking signs. Maybe there's some reference to that in misguided Christians who are constantly looking for miracles, whereas the miracle of Christ crucified, Christ raised, and I won't re-preach my sermon on Sunday, but the, the miracles of God are everywhere and evident and manifest and concrete. 
if we have eyes to see. <laughs> we don't need to be looking for signs as the Jews did who rejected the word of Christ. And then the Greeks seek wisdom. And of course, as, as we're going to see Paul articulate down the road, that's a wisdom other than Christ, contrary to Christ. I'll butcher it, but this is where like G.K. Chesterton observes that a man who rejects Christ, you know, or becomes an atheist doesn't believe in nothing, but suddenly believes in everything. Because the alternative to, I mean, let me give you a concrete example. The alternative to God creating the world six days is aliens. And you have straight-faced scientists now asserting aliens seeded life on planet Earth. That's maybe the most viable theory we have. Oh, who seeded them? More aliens. It's aliens all the way down. That's more plausible than God. So a man, a man who rejects God will believe anything. Man who says, you know, who rejects the truth will believe any lie. And that's really a study of what we've seen right now, no matter how ridiculous. Okay, so that's the kind of wisdom that the Greeks are seeking. 23, but we preach Christ crucified. Now, we're going to be careful with that. We're going to put an asterisk because it's absolutely essential. It's the foundation, but it's not quite the it's not quite the boast. It's not quite the banner phrase that we might think it is. We're going to see that develop in chapter 2. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews. That's the scandal on, so they fall and are smashed. It's the same language. Remember when Jesus talks about the the stone that falls and crushes or that one trips upon and is crushed? That's the scandal on, the stone that the builders rejected, quoting from the Old Testament, that is Christ. So Paul using that same imagery here. So it's a scandal on to the Jews. Um and folly, foolishness to Gentiles, but to those who are called. So this is called by the Father, both Jews and Gentiles, converted to Christians, called by the Father. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So all our strength is in Christ. Now, there's a great irony and a great delight here, too, that it's Christ crucified. All our strength is in the weakness of Christ. All our wisdom is in the foolishness of the cross. And in this weak strength, in this foolish wisdom, God triumphs over the wisdom and strength of the earth. That's Paul's next move. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God, that's what he's talking about, the cross. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, that's Christ crucified on the cross. The weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, it's more than that. Those are expansive categories. But at the very source is Christ crucified. Christ crucified is the wisdom and the strength of God. And it is, as we'll see Paul say, the foundation upon which all other theology is built. But can you live in a foundation? If I said, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I go to a homeless person, I'm going to build you a home. And I just lay a foundation. I say, you're welcome. It's that much of a home. And that's going to be Paul's next move, surprisingly, but indeed. Okay, we're not there quite yet. So then 26, for consider your calling, brothers. There's the second occurrence of calling. And we want to see this specific to the Corinthians, because that's who he's addressing. And we remember from our first study and from looking at Acts chapter 18, that indeed, uh, as Paul says, not many of you, the 100 or so, who knows how many, 50 to 150, who knows? Not many of you, were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Maybe some of them, but not many. And Paul here, I I have no doubt in my mind, is drawing on the tradition of the Old Testament scriptures and then what will be normative for the Christian church, that this just becomes kind of a universal mark of the church. It's, It's a rare occurrence where you have genuine Christians who are wise according to worldly standards, powerful according to worldly standards, and of noble birth. Now, scandalously here, Paul uses the language of noble birth and of low birth, even though that's we'll get there in 28. But these are categories that are verboten in our, common fa- in our, in our current fascism. 
to think that there's such a thing as noble birth and ignoble birth or high birth and low birth, not allowed to have that category. Paul does. Holy Spirit does. So <clears throat> embrace the Bible. <laughs> All right. 17, but God chose what is foolish in the world, which in this case is great because it's the Corinthians. And by extension, it's us. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And I'm kind of poignant about this sometimes. When you look at when you look at pastors, now obviously in the history of the church, there are some wonderful pastors. There are some brilliant pastors, there are some strong pastors. But when you look at who God chooses, by and large to be pastors, it's not who you think he would pick. And St. Paul is among them, as he will from time to time point out. Why on earth would God have chosen me? I am he who was persecuting the church. I was the villain. I was the, the Darth Vader. And God turned around and chose to make me more fruitful than all others and may, and bless my labors to be more fruitful than all others. So this if so embodied in Paul himself is this idea that Paul is not your not who any person would sit down on paper and go, yeah, 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 that, that's the guy. That's the guy. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's almost absurd. It's like, it's like some notorious, you know, fa- evil figure. God suddenly flips onto his team. That goes back to the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're not who you would, yeah, they're not on paper who you would pick. Some of the prophets even point that out. I can't remember which of the minor prophets. He's like, I, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. This is the Rhodey Standard Version. But he's talking to his detractors. He's like, you think I want to be here? I was taken out of my fields. I want to go back there. <laughs> but this is what God says. So deal with it. <laughs> it's great. You get, uh, yeah, and that's true. I mean, that takes us down kind of this other path where you get uh, willing and less than willing prophets of God. You get Isaiah, here am I, send me, send me. And you get Jonah, I'm out of here. <laughs> Getting on the motorboat the opposite direction. So, yeah, you get those prophetic personalities, too. Um, the design of the weakness of the, of the true church on earth, the design of the weakness of the true pastorate on earth is just that, by design. And we're going to get to why that is in a minute. But the reason, very simply put, is so that no man can boast. No men can boast. No one can say the gospel grew because of my gifts and talents and abilities. The, the gospel grew in this place because we're just a bunch of geniuses and we, we figured it out. God has reserved for himself that glory in such a way that we can boast in no one but him. That's where this little minor argument in the overarching argument is going to go. So in the movie, Darth Vader, we get a, a white uniform and change. And what's move part of the movie with that happen? <laughs> yeah, right. I'm your father. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, the notorious villain becoming good. Don't get me started on Star Wars, though. The Jedi's are all liberals, so I'm not sure that they're uh, they're all relativistic liberals. I'm not sure they're the good guys after all. Maybe we should start getting some Sith stuff going on. Anyway. <laughs> Maybe they're both bad. How's that? Stay on safe ground. Yes, sir. Uh, There's a question. Uh, Christ crucified is the center or the focus of the power of God. Mm -hmm. So where does the resurrection of Christ fit in for that? I've heard people say, well, I, you know, they're uncomfortable with that humility and the death, but yeah, I, I, I follow a, a resurrected Lord. Power of resurrection. Yeah. Uh, it's probably good intention, but misguided. And yeah, it's a different, the emphasis is on the wrong syllable there. <laughs> while the while the resurrection of Jesus is of central importance, especially in terms of uh, preaching and, and apologetics. I, and here I'm really even limiting myself to the biblical data, the New Testament data. It does not have the central role that the crucified Christ has. It simply doesn't. And here's one chief example of that. Uh, the point being that as the as the apostles saw it, 
as the scriptures record and reflect it, the destruction of death is not in the resurrection, but in the death of Jesus. By his death, he destroys death. By his death, he destroys the one who has the power of death. Thus, he is raised. That's just It's just a matter of emphasis, right? But thus, he is raised, and thus, we are raised. But the real, the real, I mean, the sword going into the heart of the dragon is the is Christ crucified, not Christ risen. Christ risen is a result of that, is a result of the victory won. So in um in the scriptures, you have this really minor motif. You've got this descriptions of the champions of old, these really masculine men and soldiers. And their claim to fame, what's often highlighted amongst their other sort of trophies and victories, are the occasions in which they faced an enemy who was armed in combat, and they were unarmed, and they ended up killing him with his own weapon, killing the enemy with his own weapon. So you'll see this as like a minor motif running through some of these descriptions. Now, the most famous one you're going to recognize right away and that's David and Goliath. So he strikes the giant in the forehead with the rock from the sling, but then he takes the giant's sword, Goliath's sword, and lops off his head with his own sword. That's what's happening at the cross, and that's why that's there. That whole motif culminates in the cross. That, that you probably know, I mean, the cross is, we're going to get there in just a minute, the cross is effectively the weapon of Satan going to put to death the Son of God, going to put this whole thing to an end. And so in his very move to attack Christ, Christ takes that very weapon and flips it on Satan and uses it to destroy him. So a lot of fun you can have with that, because of course the cross looks like a sword stuck in the ground. So it is that sword by which he beheads the Goliath of hell, if you will. Yeah, so that that all flows into this idea that the death of Christ is the true victory. The resurrection is an effect of that victory, not to take anything away from the resurrection, but just that's why you see that the resurrection itself, even in the New Testament scriptures, isn't more prominent than the crucifixion. That's why early Christians aren't having a bunch of like images of the open tomb but images of the cross and images of Christ crucified on the cross. It's that understanding from the very beginning. Even in Revelation, where Jesus is shown in heavenly glory, he's the lamb who stands and yet stands as one having been slain. If the resurrection was everything modern Christians think it was, it, it is, or um, then Jesus would also not have any wounds. Because he's triumphed over those too. Look, no marks. I'm perfectly clean. But when Jesus shows himself to his disciples after the resurrection, the very first thing he does is shows them his wounds. So Christ is forever the crucified one. And that that's this idea too that like, oh, no, 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 he's past that. <laughs> you can move past Christ the crucified. Now he's Christ the risen. Nonsense. Christ the risen still bears in his bodies the marks of the crucifixion. Christ the risen is Christ the crucified. That's the whole point of John's revelation, that even in heaven, even in glory, Christ the risen is Christ the crucified. He's always and forever that. Yeah. This reminds me of the collect we prayed a couple months ago, that uh, your almighty powers made known chiefly and showing mercy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so exactly. we might think that the power is shown in the resurrection it's actually the show of yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and then just understand it from God's perspective too. Like, and, and this will take me way too far afield if I do it justice, so I just won't. But there is a lot of tit for tat back and forth between God and Satan. And the final end of that is that God delivers the death blow not by showing his raw power or his raw wisdom, but by complete weakness and complete foolishness. So think about that. Like, is it more, is it like, is it more impressive if you, you know, if a boxer defeats another boxer just straightforward in a fight, or is it more impressive if 
the victor wins by being blindfolded with both arms tied behind his back. That's a lot more impressive. And that's effectively the final blow in this battle that God delivers. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll beat you with both arms tied to a wooden cross, nailed, nailed there. By the way, you'll be the one to do it. <laughs> so as you're rejoicing in those nails going through his flesh, it's going right through your heart. And you're the one nailing it. You're the one blowing yourself up. I mean, this is the wisdom of God, and this is the insult. that God knows how to deliver an insult. It's one of the most beautiful and comforting things when you think. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. You go, oh, how sweet it would be if I could. No, 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 no. No, no, no. That's, a, that's rookie payback. That's <laughs> rookie insult. So God knows how to deliver an insult. God knows how to get vengeance uh, and just vengeance. I'm not trying to portray God in any negative light here, obviously. Uh, just vengeance. But God knows how to do that. And he handles his business on the cross. Uh, that's, yeah, that's the main thing. It's where the victory's won. Pastor? Um, so a a pastor from an LCMS church in Orange County that I stopped attending um, used to say something that kind of made sense but I always thought was kind of odd he said that the early church would not have worn crosses because it was the way Christ was crucified he this is a statement he made that it would be like wearing an electric chair or something on your um necklace i just thought it was kind of an odd thing but i didn't know what to make of it you know based on what you're saying it that's complete rubbish uh i mean i'll explain everything in the kindest way (laughs) i wouldn't agree with i mean i wouldn't agree with i i agree with the i agree maybe with what the first part of what he's trying to do which is sort of re-put back in that uh scandal of the cross so to modern you know to us you see crosses everywhere and people wear crosses even while they're engaged in manifest sin. <laughs> so it's kind of like lost its uh, reality there for us. And it's become a symbol detached from that reality. So when pastors say things like it's like wearing an electric chair across your neck or something, I think there's some value in bringing us back to the reality of what the cross was. It's a torture device. But then to assert that early Christians somehow distanced themselves from the cross because it was embarrassing or scandalous to them, you hear Paul saying that embarrassment and scandal is our boast. That's our pride. That's our victory. That's the weakness and foolishness of God by which he destroys the wisdom and strength of the world. So I think the second part I would would disagree with, I think St. Paul would disagree. More importantly, (laughs) St. Paul would disagree with it, right? Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Great observations. Thank you for the conversation. Um, if there's anything else, I'm willing to entertain it. Otherwise we'll jump back in. Okay. So just again at 26 for consider your calling brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low, but what is low born. Agone, which is um, the exact opposite of noble birth, which is uh, eugenase or oigenase. So you see the the gen or gen uh, root. That's what he's that's what he's doing. He's contrasting the noble birth here with God shows what is of low birth in the world, what is low in the world to shame the strong. God shows. Uh, yeah, what is low, sorry, what is low and despised? My eye jumped. Sorry about that. God chose what is of low birth and despised um, or ignored might even be a more accurate translation. Despised is fine, but the sense of like ignored. God chose, yeah. Is yeah. that term related to agony? No. Mm-mm. It just sounds similar, but yeah, it's. A, like gen being like generated, and then A, so of nothing, of no generation, of no account. Mm-hmm. Okay, so once more, I'll try not to butcher it this time. God chose what is of low birth and despised or ignored in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. 
So I know that this can be kind of confusing, but it's like when, I, I mean, a concrete example of this would be, he calls us saints. We are not, and yet we are. He calls Abraham, uh, or he changes his name from Abram to Abraham, which means the father of many nations. Yeah. <laughs> so he takes that Abraham's not a father of anyone. And then he's the father of one, right? And so that's what God does. He takes the things that are not and, and calls them what they will be and they are. Yeah. And that's just the demonstration of his power. So how does that work with the cross? Well, again, you know, if we just, it's the death of a Jewish guy on a Friday afternoon. That's all it is. It's nothing. But from that nothing comes everything. Right. So that's, that's, I think what he's getting at. And that, that's same with us. I mean, on the one hand, we're nothing. We're of, we're not, there's not many of us who are, uh, wise or powerful or of noble birth. We're all lowly. And yet we are going to become the sons of God. That's the point. And the, and the sons of God, again, I've spoken on earlier. Maybe I'll have occasion to speak of it again is higher than really any of us can fully conceive. Okay, 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, this boasting language for Paul it can also be translated into the conversation on justification. Like, if you have any part in your own justification, then you have reason to boast. Because you're doing something that the damned aren't doing. So Paul's language of boasting runs right through justification and then runs through the whole of Christianity, that there's there's nothing that we do that constitutes or uh, allows for boasting so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. So there too, just not because of yourself, faith is a gift, as is stated clearly elsewhere, but because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because of his choosing, because of his calling. Going back to previous verses. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. So though we are fools, we are wise. Righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. And those three words are all basically used synonymously here. Righteousness and uh, sanctification here being set apart as holy, being made saints. That's what God's doing. So a general statement here for the whole Christian life. And then redemption to be bought back, redeemed. Which redemption there is... um, in the sacrificial system, you're redeemed by something taking your place. Remember when Jesus is taken by the temple and they offer the offering of the poor, the dove, and he's the firstborn male, so he's belongs to God, according to the law, and then they redeem him with the dove. That is, the dove's life is sacrificed and given in his place. They can have their son back. So the re- the language of redemption in the Bible is actually temple language and it's language of exchange. So one is given that, you, you know, Christ belongs there. Jesus belongs there. Joseph and Mary give the dove. That's the exchange. So when we are redeemed, what's the exchange? Christ is given for us and slain for us that we who belong to Satan are brought back or we who belong to the condemnation of God and death are brought back. So it's the it's the temple language more than it is the language of the agora or the marketplace. We get confused on because you know you did you redeem your coupon? And even that is kind of like did you give the coupon for the benefit? So there's this I, there's still nation within it this idea of exchange. Okay, nonetheless, then and this is where the epistemology kicks in. That Christ is our wisdom. And thus for us, all wisdom flows from Christ. And of course, he's our righteousness. He's our holiness. He's our sacrifice, our redemption. 
so that as it is written, and this comes from Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. I'll read that in just a minute. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we can't boast in ourselves. We have no wisdom. We have no strength. Christ is our wisdom and our strengths. Thus, we boast not in ourselves. No one can boast in the presence of God, but we boast in the Lord. Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love and justice and righteousness on the earth, because in these I delight. So then reflecting on that, you can see how Paul's entire case has been built on Isaiah 29, 14 and Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. In other words, Paul's just doing sola scripture theology all the way through here. He's not saying, hey, I'm an apostle and this is on my mind. It's brand new stuff. You should believe me. He's literally teaching the scriptures to them. So far, so good. Anything here? Yeah. I have a question about Paul's use of sanctification. It seems like there's talk of justification versus yeah, yeah. sanctification. And here it looks like uh, sanctification is being sort of given in the context of this was done for you. This, this is something you don't have a part of. And is that. How would normally speak of sanctification where we sort of have a part in that? Um, no. So there's just two different ways of speaking about sanctification. And one sanctification is synonymous with justification. That's what's really in view here. So to be, to be holy in God's sight, to be justified in God's sight, same concept. That's what's in play here. Elsewhere, when we dis- make a distinction or distinguish between justification and sanctification, there, in that distinction, sanctification is synonymous, not with justification, that's what we're distinguishing it against, but it's synonymous with regeneration, renewal, new birth, uh, the new man, the new powers, the new obedience, all these phrases that are scriptural and come out of the scriptures. So, yeah, it's just one more one more place where we've got to make careful distinctions in theology. Is it a different word that's used? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Yeah, same word. So, I mean, just by way of example, you've got the law is used in different senses. Uh, repentance is used in different senses. Disciples are used in different senses. Even apostles are used in. So there's a wide sense of these and a narrow sense of these. It comes to us in the scriptures and it comes to us in the later development of theology. It's one of the, it's one of the, you know, just one of the hurdles you have to get over when you're studying theology is just over 2000 years where it's going to be used in different ways. Sometimes those distinctions come from the scriptures themselves. Sometimes they don't. Good question. All right. On to two one. And I, when I came to you brothers, did not proclaiming, did not, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. So what's Paul saying here? I myself, when I came to you, that is before you were even Christians, when I came preaching the gospel to you and you became Christians, you were called by God and you became the church in Corinth. When I came to you, I came to you in lowliness, in weakness and foolishness. That's going to be Paul's point. What is the problem going on in Corinth? They're all boasting, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Christ, I'm the big important spiritual person, I'm all puffed up in my spiritual gifts. Now, we're going to get there later in Corinthians, but that's now we're a profile starting to develop of what the ethos is at Corinth and why Paul's attacking that. Okay. So no, nobody has reason to boast. Everyone is weak and lowly, even I myself. And I was so when I came to you. You can see how his rhetoric is working. It's just marvelous. I have a concern because Apollos and all of them were with Paul. And they wouldn't have they wouldn't have gone along with their stupidity. Apollos wouldn't have gone. Yeah, we don't know. I, I mean I don't I don't know exactly where Apollos was during this. It may be that he departed away and was with Paul, or it may just be that 
that they needed the authority of Paul to come in and clear this up. But, I mean, who knows? If Apollos is there, he may, may well have been saying, brothers, this is foolishness, this is nonsense. It doesn't mean Paul's still not going to hear from Chloe's people and write his own opinion in. Yeah. Okay, so here we go. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech and wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Again, the emphasis on the crucifixion. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This seems to be one of the accusations made about Paul behind his back, and you piece this together in 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians by what Paul says, that those who are antagonistic toward Paul are saying Paul's not a good speaker. He's He has a weak physical appearance or presence. So again, think of the rhetoric and the wisdom and the sophistry, like you want to look powerfully, powerful, speak powerfully, this kind of thing. That's what's impressive. And so Paul's like fully acknowledging, no, I don't, I don't fit those criteria. I'm not some imposing force. So he's, he's fully willing to admit here, look, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message, it should be preaching, really. My logos, my word and my kerugma, my preaching were not implausible words of wisdom. Like, so plausible would be like, convincing words of wisdom as if like designed to manipulate you into believing but rather in demonstration of the spirit and of power so you can go back and look at acts and see um the miracles that paul's working or god's working through paul so that's one but then also the conversions and maybe even more so the conversions that's the power of the spirit not the power of human eloquence as it is today you know you can have all the right answers, say all the right things, give all the right arguments, and the person is nonplussed, continues in unbelief. Okay. So it's not that. It's the power of God. So in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So that's the genius. Paul's saying, look, I, lest, lest you think that I converted you. My eloquence converted you. Rather, your faith needs to be in the power of God, not in my eloquence or, in this case, lack thereof, because Paul made a conscious decision to not play that game in their midst. Okay, six is where it's going to get a little bit scandalous for our modern ears. Yet among the mature, the teleois, we do impart wisdom. So just let that steep itself in your mind. Paul's going to come back to it. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed, pro orosin, uh, ordained or preordained before the ages for our glory. Okay, so Paul has not yet made the points which are going to scandalize us entirely as 20th and 21st century Christians, but um, already we've got something that mitigates against the radical Lutheran position because there is a secret and his hidden wisdom of God, which God foreordained before the ages for his glory, for our glory. So last week or maybe a couple of weeks ago, the theology of the cross, theology of glory distinction was brought up. And this is one of the ways it's mangled in our modern day, that if it has to do with you or your glory, this is a theology of glory. It's denounced by Luther and denounced by the scriptures. Somebody should inform St. Paul. Because here, this is decreed by God, or foreordained by God before the ages, for our glory. 
And that's going to be tied in in the very next verse with the glory of Christ. None of the rulers of this age understood this. Now, one way to read this is that the rulers of this age are the people in Jerusalem who crucified Jesus, but I think that's absurd. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Is he talking about the people in Jerusalem? Are they the rulers of this age? I find that in completely far-fetched and ridiculous. Plus, what do they have? What, what are the Jewish leaders who crucified Jesus all, all the way over in Jerusalem have to do with the Corinthian congregation now? Nada. So I think going all the way back, you have the wisdom of this age, the rulers of this age in verse 6. And then in 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. Why didn't they understand this? Because it was the secret and hidden wisdom of God. The scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures were both straightforward and hidden, and in such a way that the opponents and enemies of God, the ruler, the spiritual rulers of this world, Satan and his demonic cabinet, did not understand. If they understood, they never would have crucified Christ. For the very reasons I was explaining earlier, by crucifying Christ, they destroyed themselves. I mean, as they were, as they thought they were destroying Christ, they were literally destroying themselves. And they were doing the one thing. I mean, that's the irony. How could they lose power? They've got right claim to us. We obeyed them and not God. We're subject to them and to their kingdom and to suffering and to death and to hell. That's why the scriptures call Satan the God of this world. What could they have done to lose this? Nothing. Well, there's only one thing in all the cosmos and all possibility that they could have done to lose grip on us. And that's crucify God in human flesh. <laughs> it's just wonderful. It's so delightful. God duped them into doing the one thing that would result in them losing everything. So uh, Paul is just marveling in this secret and hidden wisdom of God which the rulers of the age did not understand, because if they did, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And there's the connection. So, you know, the theology of glory misunderstood is glory bad, cross good. But look at this. He's the Lord of glory as the crucified one, and he's the Lord of glory, and we have our glory in him, and glory foreordained before the ages began. Yes, sir. What is the error then? You hear about the operation, um, that the group that claimed that the secret knowledge of God and they had that particular religion. Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Yeah, yeah. So, was it the old balance? Because they claimed they had secret knowledge of God. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, their, their secret knowledge of God, their gnosis, their whole system is an error. But it doesn't mean that there's not a secret knowledge or wisdom of God. There is. I, and why I know that is because Paul's saying it. And I think he's right. So there is a secret gnosis, a secret and hidden knowledge or wisdom of God. And Gnosticism is just a false system with a false knowledge in all its forms. I mean, Gnosticism is an umbrella term for all kinds of things. They claim they have Yeah. Yeah. Um, obviously, they, if they reject Christ, they don't have it. So, yeah. It was a rejection. They have the so-called books that they can in and around. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Gospel of Thomas and all yeah, of yeah. these Gnostic texts. Yeah. yeah. Um, the Gnostic texts, as a general rule, despise the flesh and despise the incarnation. And and then would would generally speaking kind of assert that Christ's crucifixion was a faux crucifixion, it wasn't a real crucifixion. So that particular that particular heresy is called docetism. What docetism? Yeah, not real. Um, that the, the divinity was somehow separate from the humanity, such that the divinity didn't experience the crucifixion. That's one take, or that an. Uh, or so, so like a crass way of putting that would be that God did not shed his blood. The scriptures explicitly call it the blood of God that was shed for us. 
Um, but maybe more to the point would be that that the whole crucifixion itself was just an illusion. That's that's like a docetic uh, argument. Yeah. So, I mean, thanks to the Orthodox Church fathers of old that we can laugh and giggle at these things. But at the time, it was really thought like, you know, hey, this is the silver bullet. We can get all the Jews to believe, too, if we just embrace this idea that Christ, what you know, because they're scandalized. It's a stumbling block. So let's just say it was a it was an image. It was a mirage. Then they'll come in. You can see how that works. I, I'm in the birthplace of so much heresy is evangelism. <laughs> and by that, I don't mean evangelism in the right and biblical sense, but I mean this, we have to reach these people. We have to bridge the gap. We have to compromise some doctrine or practice. It's absurd. Uh, but it's the same old song on repeat. I, all, that's what's happening in our own day and age. That's where all the aberrations and changes to practice and doctrine are coming is, oh, we're going to die. We're irrelevant. We've got to grow. We've got to evangelize. But people aren't believing. Okay, what should we do? Let's change our doctrine and practice. Usually the, the craftier ones say, let's change our practice. Our doctrine won't change. Right. Because that's how it works in, in all of life, right? Your attitudes and your behaviors are completely disconnected. Your, what you think and what you do are completely disconnected, right? It's absurd. So, yeah, and again, we can trot out the old slogan, Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, and in the original statuette. So the way you worship becomes the way you believe. And that's a, uh, that, that can be a generational truth, too, which we're seeing in spades. I mean, it's kind of like the great big I told you so is already becoming obvious right now, whereas, you know, a few decades ago, everyone in, in Luther land was saying, hey, if you guys worship like Baptists, it's not long before you start to res- you're going to start to believe like Baptists. And no, 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 we can have Lutheran substance and evangelical style. That was what the slogan was. Lo and behold, here we are decades later. And by and large, those that have gone that way are indistinguishable from Baptists in many of their thoughts and their modes of speech and their expressions. When, when they do studies on how to, uh, properly catechize or evangelize or do church, who do they turn to? The big box evangelicals. Hey, Pastor, I've got a comment on that. I haven't been part of that this evangelical church uh, for so many years. It's It was dawning on me that the message was um, not preaching Christ crucified. I mean, that they did that, but it's, what can we do to improve the gospel? What, you know, so that the measure of our success in worshiping God is bringing in more people and having a better program. Yeah. And, and then they, and, and they, so the, the wise become stupid, as my yeah. cousin Chris would say. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. Well, and, and so when the whole goal is to, is to quote unquote, bring in people at all costs, then you, then you start looking at it like this, like, Oh, well, this cross turns people off. Let's get rid of it. Oh, this altar turns people off. Let's get rid of it. Oh, the the pastor's garb that shows that he actually has an office and that something important and official is going on here uh, turns people off. So let's get rid of it. And here you can see then the connection between doctrine and practice, between what one believes and what one does. And then the next generation... That has its effect. So now people look at those things that are orthodox practices reflecting orthodox faith, and they mistake that as marks of error. The next generation is perfectly inoculated against the truth. Hey, nice work, guys. Satan couldn't have done it better. Yeah, okay. Well, sorry for that little digression. Just jumping back into the text then. Um, I, this is this is this will kind of melt your face off. Uh, this is wonderful. This is insane. What Paul is saying here is uh, just so fantastic, but so countercultural and so counter the the understanding of the of the churches of our age um, on on all counts on all fronts. I mean, I don't think anybody walks away from this unbloodied. 
So to our ears, um, as, as Lutherans, especially if you've been Lutheran for some time, what's going to be scandalous to you is, is the argument that Paul begins in verse six and that he won't finish until maybe the end of chapter two and into the beginning of chapter three. But it's this idea of, um, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages. I'll just point that out, that it's plural. It's not plural when it comes to the wisdom of this age and the rulers of this age. That's singular and for a reason. This age and their power and their reign is for this age only. But what was decreed by God, this secret and hidden wisdom of God, has been decreed before the ages which would necessitate at least two, this age and the one to come. But other scriptures seem to indicate that there are ages beyond that. And for our glory, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would, have not, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, now quoting Isaiah 64, so again, just Paul thoroughly doing solo scripture or theology here, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. So, again, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart has imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. I have had this verse quoted at me multiple times in my ministry, that I need to be quiet about the things that the Bible actually says about the future state of the resurrection of the body in the new heavens and the new earth. They always say, ah, Pastor Rody, you're talking. You're trying to speculate. You're going beyond the scripture. You're trying to say, uh, indicate to us things that eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. These are things that God has prepared for those who love Him that haven't been revealed yet. All right, faces get melted off in verse ten. These things, God. <laughs> I almost fell out of my office chair. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So what was hidden to, I mean, getting back to Paul's point, what was hidden to the rulers of this age, the demonic powers, the small g gods of this age, what was hidden to them such that they crucified Christ and undid themselves has now been revealed. These things were hidden by God up until this point. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So we now understand mysteries that they did not understand. And indeed, that really the whole human race, to to one extent or another, was blinded to. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God, even the abyss of God, For who knows it? Now, here's the analogy. For who knows a person's thoughts? Knows some uncomfortable subjectivity for us, but it's it's kind of true. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person? No one knows the depths of what you think and what you have in your soul and in your mind except you. And even your words quite frequently fail to communicate that. Now, as you've probably experienced before if you're married. <laughs> so this is the analogy by which we're going to understand the bigger concept. Um who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one understands or comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit who is from God. That's why we now comprehend the inner workings of God. Because the Spirit is the only one that knows that of God, but as he gives us his Spirit, we come to know the inner mind and inner workings of God. Paul's going to call that the mind of Christ. I mean, our heads should be exploding. Because we feel that isolation, one human being to another, and there's no way to get past that, at least here in this life, in this fallen world. And how much more would it be impossible to get past that if it's God? But he gives us his spirit so that the spirit will reveal unto us these very things that are within the mind of God. It's just, it's unbelievable. It's unimaginable that God would reveal his mind and share his mind, the depths of his mind with us via his Holy Spirit. 
bring us into unity, breaking down that subjectivity, breaking down that clean line and high wall between creator and creature, inviting us in. And the Psalms are a study in this, by the way. That's where the Psalms will blow you away because they're a conversation between the Holy Trinity, most frequently between the Father and the Son. And you are invited in. We are invited in into the internal dialogue or trialogue of the Holy Trinity, of the Godhead himself. If we really understood what was going on and what we've been given, we would never, ever have in our minds the thought of like, I'm just a miserable, lowly human being. I'm not worth anything. God has seen fit to bring you into his very inner dialogue, trialogue, monologue, whatever you want to say. Our words there are all semi-true. And that's what Paul is saying. Now look at 13. And we impart this. We impart this wisdom of God, right? We impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. Paul's doing this very thing via the Old Testament scriptures. So if you want to get real specific, I think taught by the Spirit is the Spirit teaching through the Old Testament scriptures and right on into the new that Paul is penning. So taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Here's the next lochi. It's going to blow your mind. To those who are spiritual, the natural person, the sukikos anthropos, the natural man, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, they're foolishness to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, the pneumaticos, judges all things, but is himself, or discerns all things, right? But is himself to be judged by no one or discerned by no one. I mean, save for God, obviously, right? For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. And this is a quotation here in verse 16. You can see the, the quotes of uh, Isaiah forty thirteen. So look at how Paul's using this. It's one of the places where he, uh, I don't know how quite put to, how quite to put it. His point is contra, is contra this scripture, is in contrast to this scripture. Who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? Well, no one, obviously, so as to instruct him. But who has understood the mind of the Lord, Isaiah says. And Paul's saying, now we do. Now we do. What was formerly impossible has now been made possible by the Holy Spirit given. Um, the, that word fallen. Can you put the stupid in there? Yeah, sure. Do it. Stupid's great. The dynamic Chris translation. Yeah. So to, so to drive home my point, so you don't think this is the wit and wisdom of Rody here. Look at look at just sixteen one more. He's quoting the scripture for who, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him. Obviously not so as to instruct him, but who has understood the mind of the Lord? No one. But we have the mind of Christ, who is the Lord. This is where Jesus says to his disciples, like prophets and kings desired to see the things that you see and hear the things that you hear, but they did not. So that's where Christ teaches this very thing. To have the the noose of Christ, the mind of Christ has been given to us by the spirit. And again, as we see Paul's argument, that spirit articulates these things through the word, through the scriptures. I'm curious, why did we scare him? Oh, yeah, not we're not we're well, we're not we haven't scared him yet. So, in chapter three, verse one, which I see we're four minutes over, so I gotta stop. That's the cliffhanger. <laughs> Tune in again next week. So, no, I'll, I won't be rude, I'll cut to the chase just real quick. I, brothers, I uh, but I, brothers, could not address you as spirituals, as pneumaticoi. Uh, but as sarkanoids, I could not address you as spirituals, 
but as fleshlies. They put in the people because obviously that's awkward in English, right? I couldn't address you as spirituals, but as fleshlies. And you go, okay, so there's a distinction here between believers and unbelievers. I couldn't address you as believers because you're unbelievers. But that's not what Paul's saying. Look at the next words. As infants in Christ. That is to say, there are Christians, according to St. Paul, that are infants in Christ and mature in Christ. When we came and preached Christ crucified to you and left it there, that's not the boast we Lutherans think it is. It's left there because they're infants. They can't have anything other than milk. The milk's not bad, but it's just milk. They're infants in Christ. They're fleshlies. They're not yet spirituals. They're not yet mature. But to the spirituals, to the mature, we do impart the wisdom of God. And that is going to be built upon the foundation of Christ. That's going to be the gold, silver, and precious stones of chapter 3. All right. Pastor, yeah, before, please. Isaiah 5 yeah. speaks to Isaiah and says, my ways are that's the old now in the new testament or how we how we reconcile it yeah i think i think paul in this context in this mode of thinking would reconcile it as that way insofar as we are flesh and still have the sinful flesh within us we cannot comprehend these oh, things he makes known his mind to us. And it's not the same thing as saying we know everything God knows, if only we didn't have sinful flesh, right? I think that's going too far. But insofar as those things he imparts to us of his mind, um, his ways are not our ways, but we begin to understand that. His ways are not our ways. He has us suffer. We don't want to suffer. But as as we become mature in the Christian faith, we realize that his ways are our ways. We embrace suffering because through the suffering, he does his best work, right? So there's an example. All right, my friends, I'm so sorry to keep you over. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, next week we'll pick back up with these themes and I will read to you some lines from the book of Concord that will take on new meaning because the old Lutherans got this stuff. Yeah. All right, the Lord be with you.